Well, most of you know that the book of Proverbs articulates repeatedly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is a word that basically means skill at life. It's knowledge applied to life situations. So wisdom is not simply academic. It's not simply intellectual. It is doing the right thing based upon truth in the right moment at the right time. So wisdom is inherently ethical. And the Bible tells us that the foundation of true ethics, true right living then, is the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. Why is that the case? Well, mankind, the basis for right living, is an understanding that there is a transcendent being who has an unchanging moral code that is true no matter where you are or when you are. And that this God has a standard that will not bend or shift or shape to fit our circumstance or our personal tastes. And that it is to this God and to his standard that we must ultimately give an account. Having that as your backdrop allows you then in the moment, wherever you are in history, to then look at whatever ethical choices before you and place the values and priorities of your culture, of your era, of your king within the context of a larger picture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what happens when a people, when a person, don't fear the Lord? When there is no fear of God before their eyes? Then all we're left with is the wisdom of man. And the wisdom of man consistently throughout history proves at best to be rather Machiavellian. Very pragmatic, very cynical, very abusive. The book of Exodus begins with a rather grim and bleak picture. Exodus 1.1 through 2.25 actually are basically a prologue that sets the stage and presents the predicament that they need to be rescued from. The book of Exodus actually begins with the word and. It's not in any, Greek, in any English translation. We just don't even bother. But when Moses penned this, he meant it very clearly as the sequel to Genesis. It begins, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So it carries on a story. The people are in Israel. We know that from the book of Genesis that they went down to Israel to escape a famine. That Joseph had been pre-positioned there by the hand of God through the wicked intent of his siblings. And Joseph arose to the number two position in the country. Pretty lofty heights. And the people needed to come down there. And they settled in the land of Goshen. Now, I'm sure there's no Egyptologists in our midst, but the land of Goshen, if, if you think of Egypt, right now you can probably just think of the Nile River. Okay, the Nile River flows from south to north, and it empties in the Mediterranean Sea. The Nile River historically pretty much was Egypt. 
So for hundreds and indeed thousands of years, the kingdom of Egypt was several hundred miles long by about 10 miles wide. Because outside that Nile flood basin, it's just the Sahara Desert. And and life is not possible except for at a few oases. But up near where the river feeds out into the Mediterranean, if you, if you remember a map, the Nile, there's like, it's like a delta area with lots of little finger rivers where it sort of filters out into the Mediterranean. That area right there is, was Goshen. So they're up near the coast. They're up near where it's the most fertile. It's a beautiful place. And that's where they got to settle. But then, in the course of history, things changed for them. Egypt is an ancient country, 3,000 years old before they finally uh, went bankrupt and kaput underneath the Roman rule. 3,000 years. By the time Joseph went there, the pyramids of Giza were nearly 1,000 years old. Okay, it's an ancient kingdom. And they were schooled in astronomy, mathematics, medicine. They were very well-educated people which is part of why the atrocities committed here are so heinous, even from the biblical perspective. This is like Germany in 1930s and 40s, the most intellectual country in the world doing the worst things in the world. It is particularly egregious when someone who is so enlightened and who should know better acts like animals and becomes barbaric in their treatment of others. Pharaoh throughout much of Scripture is not a person so much as an office. It's a label that represents an entire way of thinking and doing business. In fact, only a few pharaohs are mentioned in the Bible. You have to wait all the way till the reign of King Solomon before a pharaoh is mentioned by name. Individual pharaohs were not the point of Scripture. That's why none is mentioned here. Isn't it interesting there was a pharaoh, Thutmose III. You ever heard of Thutmose III? Okay, well, a few fellow geeks have heard of him. Impressive. He led armies all the way up, the, up through Canaan. He, he went across the Euphrates. I mean, if, so he's like up in Syria, modern-day Syria, conquering people. But only a few people have ever heard of Thutmose III. Who here's heard of, of Ramses II? Okay, more people have heard of Ramses and his great building projects. But by and large, the pharaohs remain unknown to us because they're not really that memorable because they're just one more ruler after another. But who has heard of Pharaoh's daughter? Just about everybody who's been in a church or a synagogue or even a mosque has heard of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because she turned the ethics of the world on its head when she adopted one who her father said should have been exterminated. An act of kindness is remembered. The military exploits, the building projects, they're not even remembered at all. Who built the the pyramids? I know, maybe one or two of you know, but most people don't even know. The ethics of the kingdom of God are such that what we're impressed by are good deeds, not exploits. Kindness, mercy, forbearance, 
justice. These are the values of the kingdom of heaven. These are the things that get someone remembered. Building buildings, building two of the seven wonders of the world, that doesn't get you remembered. That's an ethic that comes from fearing the Lord. What I want to do today is point out this passage, this opening prologue, if you will, moves in three movements, three character movements. It showcases Pharaoh's malice. It showcases some heroic resistance. And then it shows Moses and his impetuousness. And it sets the stage where people need a deliverer. But deliverance does not come through the wisdom of man. It comes through the fear of the Lord. And this is a lesson that ultimately Moses has to learn. This movie, or uh, this episode has been made into many movies. Maybe you've seen the DreamWorks production, Prince of Egypt. My, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Ten Commandments. You know, Charlton Heston is, is you know, great. Yul Brenner. One of my absolute favorite lines in any movie of all time is when a defeated Yul Brenner as Pharaoh sits down on his throne. And what does he say? Absolutely. His God is God. That's awesome. Unfortunately, that's not how it rolled out in real life. <laughs> but since so many misconceptions have been uh, leveled about this passage, I, I want to sort of walk through it verse by verse and then comment uh, because it's, it's just vital for how we understand how God works and how the fear of God should direct our actions. Okay, so it begins, and I want to start in verse 7. The people of Israel, they're in Egypt, and they are fruitful, and they increase greatly. They multiply and grow exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. This harkens back to the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve, and then to Noah after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply. Whenever you see be fruitful and multiply, or they're fruitful and they're multiplying. It's drawing you back to a creation mandate that God gave to all humans, to every culture. We are called to honor the commandments of God, to the covenant of God. And they're faithfully doing that here. They're fruitful and they're multiplying. Now at this point, Remember that when the time of the Exodus comes, they number in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. But Moses is not born yet. Moses is 40 years old when he leaves Egypt. He's actually 80 years old at the time of the Exodus. Okay? So of the approximately 430 years there in Egypt, 80 of it occurs within Moses' own lifetime. So these verses occur probably about 20 years. They start about 20 years before Moses. So about 100 years before Moses leads them out of Egypt. And human population occurs much like your 401k's growth. Exponentially. If you've ever invest, looked at your investments uh, and looked at how they'll function over time, for the most part, growth is, just, is kind of steady but it's when you look at them by like year 15 or 20 that all of a sudden that exponential growth starts happening and, they, and the population or the dollar amount just explodes. 
Most of your 401k's value is going to be earned in the last few years of its investment. In the same way with population growth, they're multiplying. But eventually it reaches a critical mass where that population is going to explode exponentially. But they're not necessarily there yet. So when it says they multiplied and grew strong in verse 7, don't think in terms of the millions of people that they have 100 years later. They probably had a few hundred thousand, which is still a lot. It's a lot more than the 70 they started out with. But the key is that they are fulfilling the creation mandate. And one of the themes that gets worked out throughout all of Scripture is that Israel, the people of God, then Christ, then the church, is that there's a new humanity, that God is building a new people. And so here they are representatives of that. And Pharaoh finds fault with it. The very thing that signifies the blessing of God is seen by Pharaoh to be a curse. In verse 7, a new king rises, or verse 8, a new king rises over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This does not mean necessarily that he didn't know of Joseph. What it means is he didn't care. Eventually, a king rose up who no longer thought that it mattered that Joseph, a Hebrew, had saved them. It didn't matter. Think of how long it took for the French to not care that a bunch of of English-speaking nations saved them from the Germans. It happened within the lifetime of some of you. It took maybe five years before they didn't care. It took them a couple hundred years, so they did a little bit better. But it reached the point where they didn't care anymore. All they saw was an existential threat. And it says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. That means that we have estimated their strength, and if put to combat, we would have a serious problem. So we need to do something. Then in verse 10, let us deal shrewdly with them. And this is where he starts his plan. Let us deal shrewdly is actually mistranslated. The King James, the NIV, they get it right. Let us deal wisely with them. And here we have the application of wisdom that fears not the Lord. Wisdom in his mind says, here's a group of people in our midst. They outnumber us, or at least they have such a critical mass that they're a threat to us. So what we need to do is take measures to subjugate, subdue, and then prevent them from further increasing. And you see that specific thing in verse 10 lest they multiply. So population control is what he's after. So he pursues a plan that develops in four parts. In verse 11, they set taskmasters over them. So they immediately subjugate them. They set taskmasters and they have them do the the store cities. Now these store cities of Pithom and Ramses are not in Goshen. So you know what that means? That means that they transported them away from their homes. So they were not at home. They were not with their wives. And they would probably be on these rotational work camps where they were at these building sites for days or weeks at a time. Then they would go back home because they still had to provide for their own food. They didn't get anything for free. And then they would rotate back out. 
And the idea was, let's work them to the bone. Let's keep them away from their wives. Let's work them to the bone so that when they do get home, they'll be so tired and sore, all they want to do is go to sleep. And it doesn't work. They just keep on multiplying. In fact, we learn that there's a direct correlation between their degree of suffering and the amount of reproduction that occurs. So when he sees that simply putting them in bondage doesn't work, step two then is in verse 13. They ruthlessly afflict them. And the word ruthlessly, that's repeated multiple times in these verses, reveals to us the degree of violence that's used. Now we're talking violent oppression. And it doesn't stop the growth. So Pharaoh now makes a decision. I've tried working them to the bone. I've tried separating them from their families. Now it's time to take the life of the boys to reduce the population. He's treating them now as if they're animals. He's dehumanized them. Now we know that this was intended to be a very sensitive subject. This was like one of those secret things that only the CIA director knows about, you know, that everyone else is ignorant of. We know that it was intended to be secret for a few reasons. First of all, Pharaoh talks directly to the midwives. So he doesn't want all these people being witnesses. Second, it's to take place while the birth is happening. We know that it's supposed to take place while the birth is happening because when the, when the midwives come back and say, I couldn't kill them because by the time I got there, the boy was already born, Pharaoh accepts that answer. He doesn't say, then why didn't you kill him after it was born? So the fact that that was accepted as an answer indicates that what he's talking about how is the birth is happening, and those of you who have ever given birth or seen a birth, when that baby first comes out, there's no noise. The doctor has to clear out its mouth and its nose and then make it make noise. And the idea is in a, in a pre-anesthesia uh, uh, era, the woman's in pain, and she's delivering. And essentially, as soon as she could detect that it's a boy, she was to snuff it out before the mother even knew. We're talking essentially about a partial birth abortion. Essentially, that's what we're talking about here at this point. And of course, the midwives don't follow through. Now, the significance, why go after babies? If population control is the issue, why go after babies? Why go after the boys? Well, the boys, because who are the ones who fight in wars? Up until like 10 years ago, it's the, it's the men. <laughs> men fight in wars. And then another terrible reality of, of the ancient world is that the standard practice was you kill the men and you take the women and you make them your own wives or you sell them into slavery, but then those children that are produced there become the ethnicity of whoever the new male is. So ethnic lines were carried through the male. So by getting rid of the men, any subsequent females would be easy picking for exploitation or just adoption into the, into the Egyptian culture. Terrible. But that was their plan. And why babies? Why not just go slaughter the men? Because as soon as you start killing men, people will fight. But as long as you're killing babies, babies are disposable. 
in every culture, in every history of the world, the forces of Satan are always hardest pressing against those who are the most vulnerable. And, and this is where this passage speaks so, so significantly against our attitudes and against government policies. So many eras of human history have, have sought to, 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 to kill those who were on the peripheries of life. It starts usually with the unborn or as they're coming into the world because they don't much matter. They're expendable. You can get rid of them without causing an upst- a riot or a war. And then, of course, in every culture, it then goes to the opposite side of life, to those who are infirm. But the whole gist of Pharaoh's argument was that the growth, the multiplication of the Hebrews was a threat. The very thing that is indicative of the blessing and presence of God, the having of children, is perceived by Pharaoh to be a threat. A threat to their autonomy, a threat to their identity, a threat to their way of life. You don't have to be Pharaoh to have Pharaoh's mindset. There are so many who have the mindset that multiplication is a threat to our identity, our well-being, and our autonomy. That is why some 60 million babies in this country have been murdered. And we use euphemisms. It's not murder, it's an abortion. It's not a baby, it's a fetus. We use these words so we can emotionally distance ourselves from the horrid fact that what we're talking about is a, is a mindset that devalues a human life and sees this person as something other than it is, which is a sign of the blessing of God. And people become expendable. And it's wickedness. It is wicked. The Lord God punishes the nations for their wickedness. And we see eventually that the entire nation of Egypt is involved in this plot. At first it's quiet. But then it grows to the point where he issues his command to the entire nation. You see a Hebrew boy, you chuck him in the river. Imagine the state of a nation where something like that could be said and there's not a riot from within his own people. Where a nation could be led to the point where a command could be issued, you personally chuck that boy in the river if you see it and they don't rebel. So now perhaps you see why the Lord's hand is so heavy upon the entire nation of Egypt when he comes in judgment with the plagues. Because the entire nation becomes complicit. They share in the values and in the wisdom of the Pharaoh. Human life matters. And we need to repudiate not only the policies of Pharaoh, but the worldview of Pharaoh. The worldview that says that these children are a curse. You know how you sometimes can see it among good religious folk? You see it among the mothers who, though they have their children, they moan and groan in their hearts at night of having to rear them. You see it in the fathers who whine and complain about having to provide for them. You don't whine and moan and groan and complain when you think and believe these are a blessing. 
You want proof that the Lord has blessed you? Look at your children. That's almost the ethic of these first verses. Instead, we wage all-out war. Even in this culture, I was reading about how, uh, how in Iceland, they pride themselves that they've eliminated Down syndrome. They didn't find a medical cure. They've simply killed nearly 100% of the people with it. Oh, we've, we've fixed Down syndrome. Are you kidding me? Denmark, they've slaughtered 98%. Even in this country, when a, when a woman finds out that her child has Down syndrome in the womb, over 60% of them end in abortion. Human life is valuable. And this is exactly why the Hebrew midwives don't do what Pharaoh says. It says, they feared the Lord. They feared God. Now, does this mean that they were, you know, as steeped and biblically literate as the Apostle Paul? No, of course not. But you know what it does mean? It means that they had an understanding and awareness of the transcendent moral nature and moral code of God. And that they would give an accounting to him. And so they feared God's displeasure more than they feared Pharaoh's displeasure. And they knew. You don't kill innocent people. That's, that's murder. Even if the command is coming from the most powerful man in the world. Even if the command is coming from the one who is your lawful authority. He was their king. The U.S. military is one of the few militaries in the world that does not give an award for, for failing to comply with an immoral law. We expect our service members to not comply with immoral laws. In fact, you get prison for complying with an immoral law. We believe that the moral law of God is written on the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And that a basic awareness of the reality of God leads us to understand that it is wrong to murder innocent people. And so they refuse. After Pharaoh realizes that the plan is not working, he summons them. Why aren't you doing this? And he says, and, and they come up with, is, is it a total lie or is it a, a half-truth? We don't know. I can totally see that what they're doing is, uh, is simply taking their time, making it, to the, making it to the delivery. So that way the birth has already happened by the time they get there. I can totally see it. And every single commentary makes much of the ethical dilemma here. They save lives, but they tell the Pharaoh a lie. You know, was it sin for them to tell the Pharaoh a lie? Well, they feared the Lord. They didn't obey a wicked command. And the Lord blesses them. Okay, the text does not comment but I will say that in Matthew 23, Jesus scolds the religious leaders for the meticulous way in which they follow minor commands while ignoring the weightier commandments of the law. I would suggest to you that these women were blessed by God 
precisely because they told the Pharaoh what had to be told the Pharaoh in order to protect the lives of untold numbers of the unborn. That the command to not kill supersedes the command to tell the complete and utter truth to a despotic maniac. Especially when that despotic maniac is going to use that truth to murder people. So they don't, and they're blessed. Then Pharaoh's plan moves into the final stage to just chuck him in the river. And then Moses is born. And his mother hides him for three months. Now many people know that when a baby's first born, they make noise, but not so much noise as they do when they're a few months old. At first, they mostly just sleep a lot. But then when they're a few months old, man, they, they come alive. And with the husbands gone at these work camps, you can bet that they had rotational sweeps through the village, through the towns, looking for boys. And so eventually, she knows, I can't hide this kid anymore. And, and here's where the story in the movies gets it all wrong, okay? In Prince of Egypt, she puts him in, a, in, a, in, in the boat, the raft, whatever, and it shows like, like sailing down the middle of the river and crocodiles are coming and, and no, it says she hides it in the reeds. So in a very real sense, she has complied with the command of Pharaoh. He's, he's in the river. Only in the most strictly technical. But really, he's, he's not really in the river. He's, he's just at the river bank, hidden among the reeds. And the idea is she doesn't want to lose him. That's why Miriam is there when it says she's standing, the sister is standing there to see what would become. The, the idea in Hebrew is of guarding. She's at a distance where she could maintain plausible deniability if the wrong people come by, but close enough that she can keep an eye. And of course, Pharaoh's daughter comes along, and she's probably at the river for a religious or a ceremonial bath, not getting clean because they were rich. And as Pharaoh's daughter in that culture, she would have have had a life of ease, but not necessarily a seat at the table. She was not a power broker. She just had a rich life nice, easy life. And some versions of the Bible get it wrong. Uh, The ESV says, now the daughter of Pharaoh, whereas other versions like the NIV are more accurate. There is no article in the Hebrew. She's not the daughter of Pharaoh, singular. She's a daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaohs had enormous harems. Ramses, who we just mentioned earlier, he had 150 sons and 50, 50 daughters. Okay? Uh, They had lots and lots of kids. So she's a daughter of Pharaoh. And she sees this boy, and she has pity on him. And then, of course, Miriam is is quick thinking. And she says, I can go get a nurse. And he brings Moses' own mother. Beautiful story. And he doesn't get his name until he gets presented back to Pharaoh's daughter upon being weaned. And the name Moses is a conundrum. It's not a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name. Egyptian, like Hebrew, only had consonants, the M and the S. So Pharaoh's daughter does something pretty scandalous. She gives him an Egyptian name that phonetically sounds like the Hebrew word Masha, which means draw out of the water. So, so she names her son Egyptian, but honors his Hebrew heritage 
by a name that sounds like a Hebrew word. It's a beautiful thing. The other place where the movies get it wrong is he doesn't grow up thinking he's an Egyptian. He knows he's a Hebrew. Okay, he doesn't have this startling awakening discovery where he has this crisis of identity. He knows. In fact, in verse 11, twice it says he went out to see his people, his people. He identified as a Hebrew. And he sees them fighting, or he sees them getting beat, and he looks left and right. You know what that signifies? It's not a crime of passion. He, he, he's careful to see if anyone's going to see. And he kills the guy. He essentially, to put it in modern lingo, he essentially kills the cop. That's, that's what it was, Pharaoh's guard. He kills the policeman. Now, I don't care what culture or what place you're in, when you kill the lawman, things don't typically turn out well for you. And it didn't here either. So according to Acts chapter 7, he presumed that what would happen is that the other Hebrews would rally around him and this would start some sort of revolt and he would lead his people out. But of course the people don't get it and people don't ever get it. This was incredibly naive of Moses. You don't start a revolt by killing one guy and then burying him in the sand you don't just show up. The whole thing was ridiculously, ridiculously naive, and all it did is it showed that Moses wasn't ready to lead a people. So he gets driven out of the promised land, and he makes his way to Midian. But there again, he shows his personality, which is one of being about justice, because he sees another injustice occurring, and he stands up, and this time he just runs them off without killing anybody. So maybe he's learned his lesson there. And he settles down, he raises a family, he has a life, but he says, I've been a sojourner in a land not my own. He still thinks of Egypt as his homeland. That's where he was born and raised. That's where he spent half his life. So at this point, at the end of verse 22, he's an 80-year-old man. Okay? So what we've seen in these verses, these many verses is the backdrop for the story of Exodus how there's a tyrant operating out of the wisdom of man who decides that the children are a curse, not a blessing. He takes measures to control the population, but his plan is thwarted by five women. Did you notice that? Women in the ancient world accounted for pretty much nothing. That's why he keeps them alive. They're pretty much nothing. But these two Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and then his own daughter. Think of the scandalous nature of that. She adopts one of these people that her father said should be exterminated. That's passive resistance right there. They resist the tyrant, and they're blessed. And then we see Moses in his impetuous nature where he naively thinks that the way to bring deliverance is through the wisdom of man killing the oppressor, and making a getaway. But it doesn't work. We have that in our same era where we have troubles all around. And oftentimes the people who are able to do the most good are the people who are the most unassuming. And so you are not in the position of Pharaoh's daughter, but you and I, we are considered to be pretty much no account nobodies. 
But we are the ones that God has put in a position to probably do the most good for the people who need it the most. Repudiate the wisdom of the world. It shows throughout history that it leads to and ends in a very oppressive mindset. Moses had to chill out in the desert for 40 years to learn that there's a better way. So when we come back next week, we're going to see what has Moses learned. What I hope you've learned today is that this story is not like the movies. But second of all, I hope you've learned that the mindset of Pharaoh is still very much alive and still very much needs to be confronted and challenged. Leave this place and go and do good. Do good. Seek to save lives. Seek to interfere and disrupt a culture of death. But remember, we must do it operating from the principle of the fear of God, not the fear of man and the wisdom of man. Because using the methods and means of man, like Moses does, ends in defeat and failure. Let's pray.